China is and great power competition is the key threat we face, other people may need to question whether we're up for that. It is the week of January 18th, and welcome to episode 61 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI, will be doing a deep dive with David Adesnik and John Hanna of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and co-editors of From Trump to Biden a full review of the Trump administration's foreign policy successes and stumbles that includes recommendations for a path forward under President Biden. David Adesnik is a senior fellow and the director of research at FDD, where he is responsible for the oversight of FDD publications and the supervision of FDD's team of research analysts. He previously served as policy director at the Foreign Policy Initiative and was a visiting fellow at the Maryland Ware Center for Security Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. John Hanna is a senior counsel at FDD. Prior to his work at FDD, John served as Vice President Dick Cheney's National Security Advisor from 2005 to 2009. Prior to that, he was the Vice President's Deputy National Security Advisor for the Middle East. John, David, thanks for joining us on the podcast. We love having you on. Can you talk about the report that came out last week, the context, what the goal is, and how much of the waterfront you covered in this uh, magnum opus? Uh, absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having us on the podcast. We're, we're glad to be here. Um, so in a way, the story here starts uh, two years ago when we released what we called our midterm assessment for the Trump administration. It was similar in structure. We had around two dozen chapters written by FDD scholars trying to provide a comprehensive agenda for the, the new Congress coming in and the administration to work with it, uh, with each scholar or set of co-authors covering the area of their expertise. And then, you know, as we were coming to this election, uh, we wanted to do it uh, just a little bit differently in the sense that we didn't know who was going to win. So we borrowed some of the key features. We asked every chapter to give a uh, just a factual account of what the policy was, an evaluation of where it worked and where it didn't, and then we left the recommendations up in the air until we knew which administration was coming in so we could provide some you know more realistic things to advance what you know its agenda was consistent with FDD principles and so we started that proceeded as planned and then of course we had the enormous hiccup of uh January 6th that's maybe not the best term to describe it right so we actually you know added there's a foreword in there that our senior management added we adjusted our introduction but all the chapters were actually completed first but the real point is it was it was not a hiccup right it was a national disgrace the president incited an insurrection an effort to take over a branch of the US government and that's going to shape dramatically the administration's legacy uh, maybe almost likely the defining moment. But, you know, the thing is, there still was a complicated foreign policy record on a whole range of issues. And we're trying to address that systematically. You know, there's going to be a tendency to have sort of a throw out the bathwater, forget about the, if there's a baby in there. And we think there was uh, there were some babies hanging out in that bathwater. There are some areas we want to cover. Uh, I mean, the top ones are China, uh, Abraham Accords, uh, a bit of defense and Iran. But that's really what we're talking about here with the report. There's about 25 chapters, I think, in total, and they really do cover the, the waterfront of key foreign policy and national security issues that the uh, Trump administration was uh, was contending with over the last four years. I think the, the one area where we didn't have the in-house expertise uh, to, to really address that's obviously going to be a high Biden administration uh, issue was climate change. But we do actually have a very strong chapter on energy by uh, Brenda Schaefer. So we cover, as David said, the full range of both regional as well as functional issue areas on cyber, international organizations, international law, jihadism, uh, arms control and proliferation. Uh, and as David said, Russia, China, Iran, Iraq, Syria, the, the, the full range of issues. And, uh, and this, is, this is a wonderful opportunity, I think, for FDD to make a big contribution in thinking about both the Trump administration and the way ahead, uh, but also to showcase uh, really uh, an enormous amount of in-house talent that FTD has. And uh, if you look at the, uh, the range of authors in there, they're all really top-notch people in thinking about their, their fields. And I'd say that each of the essays is about uh, 1,500 to 1,800 words broken down to th in, into three very equal uh, balanced parts, a description of what Trump 
did in that issue area, an assessment of the good and bad of Trump, and then a, a very clear set of recommendations for the Biden team going forward. So it's all uh, pretty user-friendly. Um, if people are interested in specific topics, they can get through the table of contents and go to directly to that. If they're interested in, in the wider perspective of what we've been through the last four years on foreign policy and, and how to think about the, the way ahead, it's, I think it'd also be a very, very useful tool for, for getting people uh, uh, really struggling and, and thinking about the issues. I want to uh, kind of front load my review and say it's a terrific paper. It is very practical. Uh, it goes through the issues, uh, the most important issues uh, in, in a very systematic way. And, and I commend it to everyone's attention. I do want to later, though, in the podcast, admonish you guys for not doing more on Africa and soft power issues. <laughs> so a little uh, foreshadowing there. But before before we get into the specifics of the report, let's let's back up a little bit and talk about last week. You know, I'm a pretty cynical Washington person person. And I've watched the, the Biden campaign and now the Biden transition say for months and months that one of the things Joe Biden would do if and when he becomes president is restore American leadership in the world. And I always kind of dismiss that phrase as partisan boilerplate that you have to put into statements. After last week, I don't think it's nonsense anymore. I think it's a real thing. Can you guys talk about how you see the events of last week and how President Biden, when he takes office in a week, is going to have to have to deal with that that issue. It's a real. It seems to me it's a real thing now, where he's going to have to take proactive steps to to restore American leadership in the world and our image and our standing and our stature. What do you think? I think you're absolutely right. I think first, I mean, the issue for Americans is more about our constitutional order. That I think it would be right for most people to be thinking. My biggest concern here is upholding the Constitution, making sure an election isn't overturned on entirely specious grounds. But then there is, you know, these international implications and no president can lay down the mantle of being commander in chief. And if you think about it, other countries have been able to take for granted that the United States has had a basically a stable form of government since our own civil war 150 years ago. You don't worry about the U.S. suddenly being taken out of the game as an ally a lot of countries are depending on us to a really remarkable extent. It's, it's a tremendous risk, and they're going to have to ask, do I sort of diversify my portfolio of alliances? Do I distance myself? What, what hedging measures do I take? Um, I, I heard one person make the observation that, you know, uh, the EU, Angela Merkel, they made uh, a pretty problematic deal with China just within the past couple of weeks, allowing Chinese investment. And really one of the areas where we should have had a lot more cooperation in the past few years is the U.S. bringing Europe together to be with it in a, in a front against China of countries that value both political liberties as well as basic economic fairness and um, not stealing intellectual property across the board. And then you ask the question, well, it may seem like a bad decision for Europe, but wait, if this is what we can expect from the United States Maybe it wasn't bad to do that. So on, on the biggest strategic issue, and I think that's what China is, we make that point, we give the administration credit. Their key strategy documents made clear for the first time ever, China is, and great power competition is the key threat we face. Other people may need to question whether we're up for that. Yeah, Les, I was on a uh, one of these Zoom calls uh, yesterday, in fact, with a number of diplomats, uh, some of them from countries that uh, I guess we, we used to refer to as friendly dictatorships. Um, uh, but the Biden administration has obviously wanted to elevate this whole issue of human rights that didn't get sufficient attention under Trump. And that's one of the things that we criticize the administration for uh, is its lack of attention to human rights and uh, democratic values. Uh, but uh, I've got to say that there was some gloating from some of these diplomats uh, about, you've got to be kidding me, that the Biden administration is going to come talk to us about human rights violations and the lack of democracy and elections that maybe uh, aren't quite up to, to par. Have at it. Try coming into our capitals and talking to our presidents and, and monarchs about, about those issues now. Uh, so there's no doubt it, it, this is uphill uh, sledding for the Biden administration. The one advantage that I that I think it, I, they do have, and and I've got to say, these same diplomats who are making the point I just made, 
there was also real uh, desire and worry and an eagerness to see the United States recover from this and to come back and to demonstrate that kind of leadership to be able to mobilize coalitions on behalf of common interests. And I think that will be true in a lot of places around the world, especially amongst some of our, our longstanding and traditional allies in the in the, uh, uh, the democratic free market world who really have, I think, suffered a degree under the Trump administration from the wrecking ball approach to foreign policy and uh, are eager for a change and to see uh, you know, the United States be back, in fact, in a leadership and coalition building building roles. So I think to some level, uh, Biden, in, in part because they know Biden and they know very well the team that he's got around him, who are all longstanding veterans of, of the Washington foreign policy game, uh, that they're uh, uh, willing to and, and desirous of seeing them succeed. So let me let me invite you guys uh, to shoot arrows at the America first concept of the Trump administration in this context on China, where the president did identify uh, and his administration identified the fact that China is the new challenge for the United States in a way that other administrations hadn't. And you guys give him and his team due credit in in the report. But talk about the the limitations of his overall approach and how that led to perhaps a less effective response to China in the last couple of years than it could have been. Sure. I think the place to begin is just looking at what Trump said on the campaign trail in 2016, right? The dominant issue, and you could see why there's domestic resonance for this, was China stealing our jobs. And there's a complicated discussion about the impact of China joining the WTO, shift of manufacturing, et cetera. Um, and one other thing Trump kept emphasizing is the trade deficit. Uh, we do have a chapter on economic security uh, by some great guys, Juan Zarate and Eric Lorber. Uh, but we don't get a lot into this issue that Trump was sort of preoccupied with the trade deficit more than anything else. But that's not really the indicator of the threat from China. In fact, there's a good argument that the trade deficit is really sort of a, a secondary phenomenon that is derived from other strengths or weaknesses and should not be the measure of how the, the competition is going. So, you know, you get Trump doing controversial things with tariffs. Um, it's not necessarily bad that he did them to China, but why is he slapping them on Europe as well? That he was really dividing his attention. Um, you know, why are we putting, quote unquote, national security tariffs on Canadian steel or doing other things to provoke the Europeans when I think a lot of people in the administration near the top, but not the president, were arguing, no, this is when we all need to come together because we see these threats like Huawei, ZTE, all the companies that are building the Chinese surveillance state and trying to make intrusions. And I think in general, there was some delay in that regard. A lot of the tougher measures don't really come until later on, sometimes even until 2020. So we do get the national security strategy and defense strategy. We do get a major bump in defense spending. Um, but then it's in some ways only when Trump really gets riled up about COVID and his, it's just insisting on blaming it entirely on China. It's a complicated issue. The WHO has had a lot of terrible performance on this. Um, there's a real problem of institutional capture. Uh, we see this across the world. I personally work on Syria, and the, the extent to which Assad has co-opted the WHO is, is tragic. Um, it's become an apologist for an Assad regime, even a sanctions evader on Assad's behalf. Um, so I don't mind that criticism. But, you know, there was the degree of opportunism where you saw Trump first praising Xi lavishly for his COVID response. Earlier, of course, he'd been admiring Xi's authority. He really hadn't had much to say about human rights. Um, you know, key elements of leadership where we needed to challenge China, because th there's overall a transactional mindset that came along with America first, that we care about how much other countries maybe buy our weapons or buy our soybeans and not looking at the values element. And, I, you know, January 6th, I think, just confirmed that in an emphatic and tragic way that. The, this president is incapable of thinking in terms of the way that values undergird our strength at home and abroad. And then really, it's in this this final year when for sort of other political reasons, China bashing comes right to the top of his agenda. We start getting a lot of other good moves, like finally blocking, you know, Chinese, quote unquote, students with links to the military establishment. We're doing, you know, more on pushing back on intellectual property on a range of, of uh, executive orders dealing with it. So, yeah, it was not a simple story of they recognized the threat and they acted on it. It was 
you had an, a president with overall hostility to China in some regards, but uneven. Moves are uneven, but for uh, you know the reasons I laid out, there, it culminated in things moving much more in the right direction in 2020. Let's, I don't disagree with anything David said. Uh, you know, the execution of the uh, paradigm shift on China, you know, obviously had 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 problems and issues. It's unclear if Trump himself ever buys into the notion of China as a near peer competitor that's going to be the defining issue of the 21st century. It's not clear he ever gets beyond his own political interest, what China did to him because of COVID the trade and the trade deficit issue. On the other hand, I would say, uh, you know, the fact that what they did in that national security strategy at the end of 2017 in identifying China uh, as uh, the defining issue for the United States in the 21st century in terms of national security, uh, that strategic competition was the way forward, that China would not, as a generation of foreign policy uh, thinkers thought, uh, could not be accommodated its rising power into the uh, U.S.-led rules-based international order, that that was not only a, probably a counterproductive uh, framework to proceed in, but it, it actually had dangerous impacts on the United States that we're now trying to recover from. The fact that Trump was able or his administration was able to instigate and initiate that kind of shift and really to get some level of bipartisan support around that paradigm shift of how to think about China and how to develop a China strategy, uh, I think is uh, uh, potentially probably the most long lasting conceptual and intellectual contribution that his national security team made to American policy going forward, in part because it, it does seem to be the one issue where we're going to be able to begin to resurrect some modicum of, of bipartisanship in American national security policy. Let's uh, let's pull Russia into this conversation. The, the report urges the Biden administration to not push Moscow and Beijing together, either advertently or inadvertently. It seems to me that uh, the Trump administration has has gotten a ton of flack, of course, over over Russia. I think some of it's not quite merited. He certainly had a different approach to Putin in a way he was trying to do his own kind of personal business guy reset of relations with Russia, which frankly is something I think the Biden administration is going to try to do at a more convention in a more conventional sense, using foreign service officers and processes and uh, and a more perhaps comprehensive, well planned approach. Trump was trying to use personal charm with with Putin. It obviously didn't work. Uh, meanwhile, his his administration uh, imposed probably more sanctions on Russia than any previous administration, and was was tough on a number of issues where where the Obama administration wasn't tough. How do you uh, pull back a little bit, and how can Joe Biden and his team pick up those pieces, put Russia and China in the right places that at the same uh, and while they do that, also bring us closer to our natural allies in Western Europe. Uh, I think you make a lot of valid points that you're also going to see if you read the report. I mean, you read the report when hopefully our audience here reads it. Um, so, yeah, so, right. So there's a big a question with Trump from the beginning on every issue. How do you separate how do you separate rhetoric from action? Uh, some people have embraced this phrase. You try to take him seriously, but not literally. Um, not sure that works for Russia, but you do see a big divide that you know, the praise lavished on Putin, taking his side against the U.S. intelligence community, constantly denying Russian interference in the 2016 election, sort of outrageous. And there are, problems do eventually come when you uh, just sort of deny what should be a pretty plain truth. You know, we should have a president on the same page as the rest of the administration. Um, and of course, January 6th was a demonstration that those kind of unfounded assertions can culminate in really horrific events. But we didn't see that exactly come to pass with Russia for various reasons, whether it's because, uh, you know, other key officials in the administration wanted to keep things on course. And for whatever reason, Trump approved it. You did see, as you said, the number of designations, I think it was something like 300. Uh, we hadn't seen that before. The approval of defensive weapons for Ukraine, something Obama resisted, uh, you know, to the end. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't, you know, sort of the record of, you know, sort of giving in and giving Putin what he wanted, you may expect. On the other hand, you talked about, well, 
sort of an opportunity cost. We also didn't necessarily bring people together. And, you know, we might forget that it takes a lot of effort usually to get the Europeans on board for a firm response to Putin. They are often want to drag their feet on sanctions issues, in part because their economies touch the Russian economy more than ours does. Um, there's a number of, of countries there that are fairly sympathetic to Putin. Uh, they can sort of foil any kind of collective response. So, you know, if you had an American president working firmly to look at this Russian threat and bring other people together to deal with it, we could have had a lot more progress. And there were some areas where Trump dropped the ball. I think that, you know, we're still waiting for sanctions in response or even a determination a chemical attack was made in response to the Navalny assassination attempt. Um, it, it's a bit derivative of the North Korea issue, but we're letting Russia get away a lot with uh, violating the sanctions it nominally supports at the UN Security Council. So there's ample room for improvement. Uh, you know, I guess Biden has the sort of partisan reason to go after Russia. It's a bit of a, you know, it's been a bogeyman and exaggerated to a certain extent. Um, but yet, yet Trump brought that on with his rhetoric as well. So uh, we hope the next administration moves in the right direction on it. And David mentioned this, you know, division that we see throughout the uh, the tenure of the administration between rhetoric on the one hand and its actions on the other. Another uh, division or theme that runs throughout uh, uh, Trump's term is you've got the president on one hand um, uh, pursuing one kind of policy, seemingly, which is totally in contrast to what his the rest of his administration is trying to do in terms of running uh, American national security strategy. And they're often uh, either a contradictory or at cross purposes to, to each other. And on occasion, as we saw in Syria, uh, with the uh, Trump's announcement of troop withdrawals, it's actually a reversal of everything his administration had been doing up to that point. So it's a very odd thing. And while, you know, we necessarily shouldn't overstate it, it produced a very mixed bag. The policy might have been much stronger and more effective if you'd actually had a president of the United States who wasn't um, uh, uh, just um, uh, pursuing a different policy from his administration, but actually, you know, pulling in, in, in an opposite direction at times. That was a real problem. Uh, on this question of, of, of Russia and China and how to avoid uh, what, what George Kennan even 70 years ago talked about, the night, nightmare scenario of joining the power and resources of Eurasia with, with, with China, um, uh, how, do, how do we prevent that from happening? Uh, it's a very good question. It's something that I worry about. I'm not sure it gets sufficient attention or has gotten sufficient attention. One of the things I think you do need to do, and this is more my own personal view, is we really do need a much more robust uh, diplomatic component and element to our foreign policy and national security uh, 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 strategy. I do think there's been a withering of, of diplomacy uh, under this administration. Lots of chest beating and proclamations and actions taken and sanctions levied. Uh, but where do you look to find, particularly in the China case, any kind of sustained diplomatic strategic engagement with China? Because as certain as it is that that winning the strategic competition with China over over the next century is going to be the defining mission of American foreign policy. Uh, it's also going to be the defining mission to, that while we're engaging in that competition, we avoid either blowing up the world or impoverishing the global economy at the same time. So that's a real challenge. And I think diplomacy and engagement and looking for those discrete areas of cooperation while delivering very clear, unambiguous messages and red lines and deterrence uh, is, is going to be essential. And, and I think that's a place where the Biden administration seems to want to put a lot more emphasis and focus. John, I detected a, a critique of the swagger concept as <laughs> articulated by the current State Department in there. Again, on these things, I speak for myself. <laughs> uh, let's, let's flex to the Middle East. Uh, there's, there's a terrific section uh, in, in the report on Iran and JCPOA talking about the, the leverage created by the Trump administration with its maximum pressure campaign on, on Iran 
And it would appear that uh, Mr. Dubowitz and Mr. Goldberg put together an even more maximum pressure campaign uh, for the Biden administration if they want to choose to use it. Talk about, let's, let's be forward looking here. What's the opportunity for the Biden administration on Iran, the nuclear program, and, and Iran's other malign activities in, in the region? How can, how can Joe Biden and his team take what the Trump administration has done and use it to America's advantage? Well, I'd say it's going to be difficult in the sense you know how deep the divide runs between sort of contending factions, you'd say, of analysts who are sort of pro and anti the 2015 nuclear deal uh, known by the acronym JCPOA, right? A lot of the same people who negotiated it uh, are coming back into senior positions now. Of course, Biden himself was vice president. And, you know, there's been an ongoing argument in tremendous detail about the merits and demerits of almost every provision, the extent of Iranian compliance. And so they're sort of armed to the teeth intellectually to explain what away what we see as every problem with the agreement. So, uh, you know, our question is, how much will they listen to the critiques we've advanced once they're no longer simply in the state of justifying or campaigning when they get into office? Um To what extent can they say that their own handiwork was imperfect? Um, In certain ways, there have been less than clear admissions that this is an issue, right? So Biden says, well, I don't just want to get back to the JCPOA. I want to negotiate a follow-on agreement that's even stronger. And usually if they're going to get specific at all, they'll say, well, ballistic missiles weren't covered in the first one. And mm, we're not sure, maybe regional issues, not always so clearly defined. I mean, as we say it, if we were going to, you know, talk to them privately, no debating points, no effort to score, we'd say, look, you said this was based or Obama said this was based on verification, not trust. We come forward. The Mossad finds the Iran nuclear archive. Some have downplayed its significance. But here you have this country saying, oh, no, we don't want nuclear arms at all. We never wanted them carefully preparing all of its documentation, apparently for some contingency. Then, based on those documents, we find the Turkuzabad site where they have fissile material they didn't declare. We hope we can get past all of the claims that Iran is in compliance and they can really see you had an adversary determined to get around in every way it could that exploited the weak inspections provisions. All the promises of 24-7 inspections never came to pass. Iran is still resisting. We never got into their military sites. And then, you know, it comes to, okay, what do you do about it, right? So our, you know, we wish they'd continue maximum pressure. Uh, If they don't, we at least say use that leverage, don't give it up. And the question is, how quickly are they going to return, right? They have the option of just saying, we're going back. Uh, We'll up, you know, we'll get rid of all the sanctions Trump layered on. And we just want Iran to go back. Because Iran, of course, once we put on the sanctions, overtly violated. Uh, all the key JCP, JCPOA provisions, stockpiling, enrichment, et cetera. And, but while not admitting that they had illicitly violated it as well on their own, not in response to our withdrawal. So, you know, does Biden want to rush in and get sort of a PR kind of victory? We think that would be a lot like the Trump-Kim Jong-un approach at, uh, you know, in Singapore and Hanoi. You get together, you claim that you've, you know, you see eye to eye, we're going to make tremendous progress, the threat is going away. But if you don't actually fix those holes Iran was exploiting, the problem is bad. And in some ways, it's worse because the clock started ticking five years ago when the JCPOA came into effect. So the rest of the sunset clauses that free Iran from restrictions come more quickly. Our answer is use this leverage. Iran, you know, is backed into a corner economically. Obama said we can't continue with sanctions. They won't work unilaterally. I think we've won the debate on that one. We have shown that on you know, every macroeconomic indicator, GDP, inflation, et cetera, they've been backed into a corner and their people don't even blame us for it, right? We've seen these massive demonstrations where they're saying, no, stop spending our money on Assad and stop spending our money on Hamas, fix our country. Um, So we're in a good position. The question is, will Biden use it or is he too determined to rush right back and claim a win by getting back to the JCPOA? Yeah, Les, I think there's a uh, they face a real conundrum on this. No, no question. Um, If they do rush back in, I can assure you that this is, as David said, is such a charged issue that they're going to um, buy themselves, I think, a really big fight with the Republicans. Uh, very early on, who I think are unanimous about their opposition to to the JCPOA 
Uh, and there are a handful of Democrats who obviously were opposed to the JCPOA as well, in including the, 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 the man who's now going to be the, the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck, Chuck Schumer. Uh, we've also, uh, while the Europeans might, might welcome this kind of uh, uh, resurrection of the JCPOA and American involvement, we've got crucial allies in the region themselves who are right on the front lines with Iran who are, are extremely nervous about any rush back into the JCPOA that doesn't deal with, uh, with the agreement's flaws or with the bigger problems that they see immediately of ballistic missiles and cruise missiles and drones, as well as Iran's own regional aggression and proxy uh, gray zone warfare. So I think uh, uh, Biden's going to have to think long and hard about how he wants to proceed here. In part, you know, uh, a lot of this depends on the judgment uh, that you make analytically and within the intelligence community. There's on, on the one hand, uh, there's clear Iran is ramping up its, uh, its nuclear program as we speak in very dangerous and quite dramatic ways, uh, in particular moving up to 20% enriched uranium, which is about 90% of the way to weapons grade fissile material. Um, so their uh, breakout timeline toward a bomb is getting perilously closer and closer. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, and Biden obviously doesn't want a nuclear crisis in the first six months of, of a term that's supposed to be dedicated to rebuilding after the coronavirus and addressing some of America's own uh, 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 deep problems and, and issues. Um, uh, there's another view uh, expressed by the Trump administration and by its Iran envoy, Elliot Abrams, uh, uh, most uh, vociferously, is that we are right on the cusp. The Iranians can't stand much more of this. If the Biden administration is patient, these guys will have no choice in fairly short order uh, to throw up the white flag, return to negotiations, and uh, and try and get uh, as much sanctions relief as they can as quickly as they can. The situation for them is that dire. So I think Team Biden is going to have to analyze and take account of all these factors very, very quickly and determine an Iran strategy very, very, very early on. As David said, one of the, and I think it's more clear than David maybe gave Biden credit for, I think they now recognize full on that the JCPOA had deep flaws, that the failure to address missiles, the short sunset clauses, uh, the failure to deal with its regional aggression are real problems that need to be addressed. We need to have a follow-on deal and diplomacy to address these issues and to correct the flaws of the JCPOA. The question is, how do you get there. And, and that's the real dilemma that and, and, and serious problem that they face that I that I understand and sympathize with. Let's shift a little bit. Uh, we, we talked about uh, briefly Syria and the president's uh, kind of knee jerk decision to pull out some U.S. forces from there and how his own administration had been working in a different direction. Talk a little bit about your recommendations for Afghanistan your reaction to the the normalization effort with the Taliban over the last uh, few years, and and efforts by the the president uh, President Trump to pull out U.S. troops from Afghanistan, and and if and if you're willing, put it in the context of his kind of isolationist um, America first populist effort to to as he says end endless wars, and and how do you both work towards a uh, a sustainable uh, way forward on Afghanistan, but also kind of put this this populist notion in our rearview mirror, hopefully. Sure. Well, that's uh, an invitation for me to mention another big FDD report that came out fairly recently called Defend Forward. And it's really a, a comprehensive response to calls for U.S. retrenchment and redeployment uh, with chapters on a, on a range of overseas commitments, uh, including Afghanistan. I, I again did the chapter there on Syria. Um, you know, there's a number of, of ways to, to bite that apple. I'd say one is in some cases, right, we want to label Syria in one of those bad, endless wars. It's actually one of the wars we pursued learning all the lessons of what was wrong in Afghanistan and Iraq. The whole point is we never put large numbers of boots on the ground. We went in at the most a couple thousand troops. We leveraged local allies, the Syrian Democratic Forces, 
you know, a complex array, but the bottom line is they took the heavy casualties fighting on the ground. We had single digit fatalities while they say they lost 11,000, you know, uh, battle deaths. Um, and so it's, it's a sustainable program there where, and, you know, uh, my recommendation to Trump from early on is, hey, claim credit. Say that you're the one who learned the lesson. You didn't get us into another Iraq or Afghanistan with, a, you know, a six figure deployment of U.S. combat troops. Say you know how to win wars with 2000 troops. Now, to, in all fairness, Obama started it. These lessons, the military integrated a lot of these lessons and implemented them as we started to ramp up the campaign against the Islamic State in both Iraq and Syria. And so Afghanistan's different in the sense, of course, that started much earlier. Obama's the one who decided to go from a smaller deployment to a bigger one. You know, he kept saying, this is the good war, Iraq's the bad war. And then he put an 18-month timeline on it and started reversing things. So Afghanistan's an area where uh, our report is absolutely scathing on the Trump administration, but it's an area of full continuity with the Obama administration um, in terms of the delusions about al-Qaeda being weakened or defeated, that you know, we negotiated an absolutely terrible and unnecessary deal, which all it does is basically give guarantees to the Taliban that we will do less in Afghanistan without, despite certain claims from the administration, extracting any commitment from them to respect or recognize the Afghan government uh, or to uh, break their ties with al-Qaeda. Because supposedly the sort of sophisticated retrenching position is that we can put a wedge between the Taliban and al-Qaeda, but there is there is none of that. And claims that al-Qaeda is not operating uh, have shown to be false. They are doing just fine, uh, along with other groups in Afghanistan, that they're you know recovering from blows we hit them with. It's not that we're doing nothing, but the strategic situation isn't changing. So, you know, this whole idea that we should legitimize the Taliban by sort of having these negotiations where we, you know, treat a terrorist group as someone to negotiate with, it's been a fiasco. And I, I think the problem is we're very likely to see it continue. Um, I don't think we can tell the American people it's not an endless war because we have been there for 20 years, in large part because that sentiment has been there from the beginning saying don't do too much. So, of course, we despite the successes when Obama escalated the troop count, we then sort of dialed them back. We never found an effective way to have the Afghans perform more like our Syrian allies. Um, on the other hand, right, we're talking with this, you know, fury in some cases about a, a deployment that's less than 10,000 troops now which if done right, can be sustainable. And it's become like this symbolic drive that whether it's Obama with Iraq or now Trump with Afghanistan, everyone wants to pull out just to show that they can. We want to you know, take a more clinical approach to it. Yeah, I would agree with, with a lot of that. I think somebody, I, I think I read somewhere uh, in recent days that there are now more American troops guarding the Capitol than are deployed uh, in, in, in combat theaters throughout the the Middle East, or at least through Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan now. Um, and as David says, we're uh, the model has changed. This is not your Syrian, Iraq, and Afghanistan wars of a decade uh, ago or more. Uh, these are very small footprint economy of force missions in which we are, uh, listen, any troop uh, that we lose is a tragedy, but we're losing very small numbers of troops, very low casualties. And the bulk of the fighting and dying and sacrificing is being done by local partners, as is appropriate and, and should happen. So as, as David uh, suggests, we uh, may have hit upon a model here that is actually quite sustainable if you can get uh, a national leadership that is prepared to defend these missions and talk to the American people in a serious way about where our why our national interests remain engaged in these in these places as difficult as it is why these are sustainable why why they're worth it uh, uh rather than playing to the to the peanut gallery in the crowd who of course the american gut and instinct is to say if we don't have to be in these places let's get out uh, rather than stoking and exploiting that sentiment it would be nice to return to some modicum of of national leadership that says, yeah, we can't do everything in the world, but there are some things we need to do. And we're doing them a hell of a lot uh, smarter than we were uh, 10 or 20 years ago when we first got into this mess. We in fact have learned some very, very important lessons. And, and this is the way our national interests continue to be served and the interests of the American people continue to be served. 
Let me ask you guys about something that's uh, of the moment and not in in the report, which is President-elect Biden's decision to nominate Samantha Power to be the administrator at USAID. Seems like a very interesting move to me. She's uh, she's uh, for for a Democrat, an intellectual powerhouse. She's got energy. She's got verve. Uh, she's going to make a difference in every meeting she attends. How should conservatives be thinking about? soft power issues going forward. Have we missed some opportunities to use that budget authority and those programs in a way that advance U.S. interests? And and how should we be engaging with with the Biden folks going forward? That's a good question. It's a whole bunch of parts to it. Maybe just say the first part. So uh, power is a very interesting figure. Her first book on, you know, on genocide is a pretty amazing book. I think really you know, obviously, she's a, a very much a Democrat and someone left of center who did just an absolutely scathing account of sort of in, the inhumanity of the Clinton administration, especially with regard to, to Rwanda and regard to Bosnia. Um, you know, what's interesting I see now is that she is a somewhat of a, a, a hate figure among Trump supporters that, that you know, the, the people they hate more than any in a way on the foreign policy beyond, you know, who they label neoconservative never Trumpers is, you know, liberal humanitarian interventionists. And, you know, they again, they they talk about the intervention is in Libya as this sort of catastrophe where things did go wrong. We're not going to, you know, and but they don't ever listen to the point that, well, you can't just sort of knock over the store and do nothing to put pieces back together. You know, Gaddafi is going to perpetrate a massacre of a scale where, you know, we don't know because we didn't let him do it. And then we just Obama, of course, fearing precisely this endless war critique does nothing to follow up. Um, and then she, of course, is in office. And despite being this, you know, heralded advocate of preventing mass killing, really sort of carries out the Obama's policy of passivity with regard to Syria. Um, and those are important aspects of soft power as well. And of course, within the Trump administration, we're pretty tough on all the praise of dictators, that there's no way to have an effective soft power policy motivating people when the, when the you know, the leader at the top is really sort of expressing total disregard or concern for a- any number of lives lost, whether in Xinjiang, in Syria, anywhere else. Um, with regard to aid, um, you know, we had this situation where the Trump uh, budget would come up with these massive cuts proposed and Congress would never really give him much of what we wanted. So you'd see you know, uh, or never give him the cuts. He, they, they would then go through because there's actually a fair amount of support. Um, and I think it's, you know, interesting that, you know, a knee-jerk sort of conservative Republican resistance to foreign aid, at least among those who follow it more, melted to some extent when we saw what the amazing things that uh, President Bush's AIDS program accomplished in Africa. Um, you know, really an impressive model of spending a fair amount of money, but having an incredible impact. And actually, you know, I'm not deep into the issue. As you noted, we don't we don't have an Africa chapter. It's a second area after climate change. We could probably benefit from adding. But, you know, views of America are, you know, come across as surprisingly positive in a lot of surveys because of those efforts we made. And that, you know, Bush hasn't exactly recovered his popularity at home, but he's popular in a lot of places in Africa. Um and then, you know, what can we do now with USAID? I mean, just with regard to Syria, one of the you know things I look at, I mentioned briefly, is this problem with UNA, that a lot of the money we spend is channeled through UN agencies. And if those are captured by Assad or by anyone else, we're not going to be very effective. Our money is actually subsidizing. And this has been a critical problem for a decade of the Syrian war. Uh, the US and other key donors in Japan, Europe are subsidizing Assad. Um, so I think, yeah, there's definitely a lot more we can do with foreign aid. We have to probably have a whole lot of reforms, um, but th- there's opportunities. I think it's incredibly important, maybe more important now than, than ever to be doing um, that work and frankly, playing to an American com- com- competitive advantage, uh, which has all, always traditionally been our South power, the values we stand for our ability uh, to deliver assistance and uh, on things like good governance and anti-corruption and economic uh, reform and uh, uh, building building, uh, civic life in in countries, promoting that. Uh, We do that. Nobody else around the world has has traditionally done it uh, as well as we have. And in a context where we are going now into this strategic competition with China that really does see the rest of the world through things like uh, 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 
uh, the Belt and Road as, as its playground, as a, as a targets of opportunity, uh, whether in Asia or Latin America or Europe or the Middle East or Africa, where, where China's uh, presence is, is so dominant. The United States has got to get into that game. And a lot of that battlefield is going to be uh, played with uh, assistance and aid and soft power in these different different countries. And, and that requires resources and, and really the rebuilding of a foreign policy and national security apparatus and institutions at, at home who have their requisite uh, expertise and, and, and frankly, the resources to, uh, to actually get the job done and exploit that, that strategic advantage and, and rebuild that position of strength for the United States. All right, Grant has our exit question. Yeah, so I know we are running out of time, but I want to try to fit in two quick ones. So one is, are there foreign policy issues where President Trump missed the boat and now there is no way for President Biden to catch it? And the second one is, this report was comprehensive, save the Africa piece that uh, Les mentioned. What have we missed in this conversation about the report that you want to highlight? Sure. Well, on the first one, actually, I'd like to talk about cyber. Uh, I think, you know, FD has actually done an amazing job building up its cyber team. A lot of people think of us, we're in Iran or a Middle East place, and we have some incredible people on cyber and new, on China as well. Um, and we talk a lot about really the work of the Cyber Solarium Commission. Um, this is basically Congress mandated that some of the best people in cyber come together, come up with bipartisan recommendations. And actually, uh, dozens of them were now included in the most recent Defense Authorization Act. Uh, one of the most important is the, the, the sort of the creation of a, I guess, a cyber czar or national cyber director. Uh, this is a position that Biden should fill quickly, put a high quality person in and start having them coordinate. There's been a lot of sort of nuts and bolts work across government uh, to start coordinating better than we did before. There's a more willingness to engage in offensive operations, which some information has leaked about. Um, so, you know, this is a crucial aspect of the competition with virtually every one of our adversaries. I mean, obviously, China, Russia as well. North Korea has surprising cyber capabilities. And, uh, you know, maybe Iran's a bit of a laggard in that field, but it, it's huge. Uh, our vulnerability is amazing. We obviously just saw the solar winds attack, which reinforced that despite all the progress, um, we, we have a lot of vulnerability remaining. Uh, but I guess the good news is both we have a lot of blueprints for moving forward and there's a lot of bipartisan support. Yeah, the one area that I would uh, mention, Grant, that I think is going to become increasingly important uh, is is the area of uh, international organizations and just multilateral organizations in general. Uh, uh, we've got a chapter that's that I think excellent by 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 Rich Goldberg, who uh, focuses on this as, uh, again, in the, in, the, in the context of great power competition, China is putting enormous resources into capturing these kinds of, 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 of bodies uh, to use to its own advantage to set global standards in key sectors like telecommunications um, uh, to do things with respect to, to supply chains. Uh, that we've really got to begin paying attention to. And, and there's really a need now for a systematic development of an American uh, a foreign policy strategy toward international organizations and ensuring our interests are, are well represented there, and including, and you know, most pointedly, this question of elections to the leaderships of these bodies, which it's really been hit or miss the amount of attention these things are paid in, amongst the American uh, national security uh, apparatus. And I can assure you, China is, has got a full-time uh, focus on, on these questions. And it's, as we saw now, most recently with the whole WHO uh, fiasco, uh, they're using it to their advantage. We, if we could figure out a way to inject nationalism into multilateralism, yeah. then we win everything. <laughs> Right. Uh, hey, guys, this was great. Thank you. We, we could do like 12 hours on the report and all this stuff. And uh, 
Bottom line, though, I hope we get to the point where we have some sort of administration where you guys are serving in really high-level positions soon. <laughs> I'm, I'm not holding my breath, but we need to get back to that. <laughs> we, do, uh, we, we, we do. I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Uh, I, let me just say one thing, and, and uh, whether or not it makes it into the podcast, that's not in the report, but I think is important. Listen, not, none of us, and I think hopefully all of us who have been in this game for a long time in Washington, uh, that, that, that we're not, uh, we don't have uh, so much hubris that we disregard the lesson of Trump's election and the nerve that he was able to hit and exploit that was obviously there amongst a large swath of the American people who just felt like what was happening in Washington on foreign policy, on national security, these endless wars uh, that were costing American lives, the outsourcing of manufacturing jobs, these free trade agreements that just seem to produce lower and lower American wages. Um, and Trump was able to hit on that. And, and I think he took a wrecking ball to it. Uh, but, but the lesson ought to be learned that as we move forward, uh, you know, we in Washington, even as we try to build back some kind of bipartisan basis for foreign policy, really need to be constantly asking ourselves, how is the decisions that we're about to make, do, how do they impact the American middle and working classes, those people out in the heartland uh, who have to read about these policies and actually believe and support them that they, uh, that they actually serve their, their interests. I was very interested that Jake Sullivan was one of the co-authors on a two-year study that came out uh, late last year, right before the election, and its title was making U.S. foreign policy work for the American middle class. So whether we admit it or not, whether we're Republicans or Democrats, at some level, I think we've all become Trumpists or even America firsters in that regard. And if we're not, we probably should be in, in terms of thinking about the way, how do you make a sustainable national security and foreign policy when you're the most powerful liberal democracy on the earth and there's an awful lot of people depending on you, but you can't do everything. Amen. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing. Lester Munson for hosting. And Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.